To conclude his distinguished career, legendary Australian herbalist Dennis Stewart will present his final course, a professional extension in herbal medicine. Commencing on the 23rd of November 2019, this 12-day intensive course will be held over a period of 12 months on the New South Wales Central Coast. This will be your last opportunity to participate in detailed learning with Dennis, covering relevant, effective herbal prescriptions to treat an expansive range of conditions. For more information and to register, please go to lakespa.com.au. FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Joining us on the line again today is Dennis Stewart, a clinical medical herbalist and naturopath who's been in continuous practice for over 40 years and currently conducts busy practices in Newcastle and Cessnock in New South Wales, Australia. Referred to as the godfather of Australian herbalism, Dennis spearheaded a renaissance in Australian herbal medicine in the early 1970s and he established and taught at the New South Wales College of Naturopathic Sciences and then in the late 1970s founded the Southern Cross Herbal School. He was also conjoint associate professor at the University of Newcastle from 2002 to 2007. I could go on and on, but let's hear from the man himself. I warmly welcome you back to FX Medicine, Dennis Stewart. How are you? I'm very well, Andrew. Very nice to talk to you again. Now, we're going to be indeed discussing today the Australian Renaissance in herbal medicine. So I think we need to go back in history, though. You've been in practice for 40-odd years. You would have seen some changes. Look, Andrew, I have seen some uh, remarkable changes, and uh, fortunately I've had the the real privilege of being able to uh, be part of that change and to uh, participate in that change. I was there at the beginning, and uh, I'm still here now observing the change going on. So, Dennis, what about the types of herbs that you've seen from your early years to now? I mean, we've seen some herbs like comfrey and coltsfoot taken off the Herbal Register, and we've seen a change in, I guess, the expectations of herbal medicine practitioners over the years as well with regards to the products that they have available to them. Yes, look, I think that's a, a significant observation. When um, I was um, studying um, herbalism and uh, indeed when I first started practice, our, our practices were very much based on what was called the physiomedical or the Anglo-American system of herbalism that uh, took its roots um, from the US under the auspices of a an American gentleman called Samuel Thompson, and uh, whose ideas and uh, and many of his herbs were subsequently transported back to Europe, particularly to the UK. Um, so the the herbs that characterised my practice in the early days were strongly physiomedical herbs, that is, herbs associated with uh, this um, significant development in, in, in herbal medicine, the development of a style of herbalism, um, incorporating uh, a significant number of American herbs, many American herbs indeed, yeah. as you would expect, yeah. uh, but also being blended with the, uh, with, the, with the herbs of old England and Europe generally. So my practice was very much taken up with the herbs that represented that system of herbalism at that time. And in those days, we could use um, herbs like lobelia, uh, we could use uh, herbs like uh, coltsfoot, we could use herbs like comfrey, uh, many other herbs which were part and parcel of our of our practice, which these days, fortunately or unfortunately, uh, are no longer uh, available or no longer uh, permitted to be prescribed by non-medical practitioners. But... Uh, moving from that era, we have seen a significant alteration in the style of herbalism. Yeah, and look, that uh, alteration um, has become fairly obvious in as much that 
many of the herbs that we use today and depend on today, many of the herbal remedies, um, were largely not used when I started 40 years ago. And good examples of this would be uh, the way in which herbs like, like the bilberry, uh, herbs like the ginkgo, um, and some of the more modern remedies, the, uh, the turmerics, etc. These herbs which now um, uh, represent, if you like, a movement in medical herbalism uh, to embrace uh, a more modern and more eclectic selection of herbs, not that we've in any way departed entirely from the uh, the initial remedies. We couldn't practice without the remedies that are from the physiomedical tradition. But the, the herbs that we use today are, are different in many ways, uh, are broadly based, being drawn from many other traditions. Herbs like Dong Kwai from the Chinese tradition, for instance, is a good example. Uh, herbs like Withania from the Ayurvedic tradition. These herbs now play a significant role in the in the practice of herbalism. So it's moved, if you like, from a strong Anglo-American base with all the remedies that went with that to a much more eclectic system of herbalism today. Now, you said the word eclectic. Um, does yes. the physiomedicalism uh, style come from yes. the eclectic physicians okay. in the early... Uh, Yes, look, there were a good group of practitioners in the U.S. known as eclectics, and uh, these were uh, practitioners that were essentially eclectic. They took on board uh, herbal medicine, certainly, but they also practiced uh, other modalities. Many of them were, in fact, medical practitioners. Yeah, doctors, yeah. But who preferred to be known as eclectic uh, in as much that they blended with their medical approaches and their medical remedies and medical procedures, the use of other modalities, particularly herbal medicine, and from the eclectics, um, particularly people, I think Elliwood was was a great member of the eclectic team, we get some of the best monographs of the, uh, the, the American selection, if you like. You were also mentioning about a different use, if you like, of, the, of ginkgo, of bilberry and of turmeric. Yes. You know, turmeric is probably the biggest one for me. Now it's, it's anti-inflammatory, anti-cancer, if you like. Um, but, but to me, it's been pigeonholed as an osteoarthritic um, or, yeah. or a, an allodyne, if you like. But what are the, the other uses that we used to use turmeric for? Well, I think we have to be, we have to be, be, be cautious here when we're uh, looking at any herb that we don't just try to uh, pigeonhole it and see it um, being only used um, for one condition based on only one active principle mm. that's been located uh, in the herb. Um, my use of, of turmeric is, is broadly based. Certainly, uh, I still would use some of the more modern preparations or modern forms of it, which do emphasize, if you like, uh, the presence of an active principle, the curcuminoids in the herb, but I also use the herb um, as part of a routine, a dietary program, a recommendation that uh, is based on my understanding that the crude herb, the crude herb in its unconcentrated form has some ability, if you like, to work in the gastrointestinal tract, mm -hmm. uh, particularly as, as an agent to, to promote improve biliary flow and also perhaps to set up a healthy environment within the large bowel, which would seem to be um, providing some resistance to some of the pathologies that, are, that afflict that area. So I use, I use turmeric in a number of ways, but certainly I don't um, over, override its traditional use that is rooted in Ayurvedic medicine uh, which has spilled over, of course, into our system of medicine. You know, you make a really important point because I indeed, you know, the historical use was, as you say, as a cologogue, but I hadn't even thought about that it, that it might be setting up a, uh, a favourable gastrointestinal um... environment. Thank you. Yeah. yeah well, <laughs> Is the well, word. Look, uh, there's, there's a, um, a, a text that has helped me understand this um, fairly well by uh, two, two Canadians that it's called Foods um, That Fight Cancer by Bellevue and Gingras, 
Um, that's a readily available text, which is a, a remarkable work. And I say remarkable. I hope I've pronounced the names of those gentlemen correctly. I think I'm right in in, in, in the mentioning the name of the text. But in in that book, there are select, uh, I call them monographs or discussions on a range of foods and uh, I would say herbs in some cases, which have been shown to have significant chemistries and traditions which explain an ability to be able to resist cancer. And with reference to um, the herb turmeric, there's a significant um, discussion in that text which points out that in in countries where um, turmeric is regularly taken as part of the diet, there does seem to be some uh, lesser incidence, particularly of serious pathologies of the large bowel. And um, I'm pretty impressed with that, and um, that would encourage me to believe that um, the herb has a wide area of use, perhaps when regularly taken as part of the diet, uh, as it is in certain parts of or in, all over South Asia. It has benefits in creating a healthier, maybe a, a stronger resistance to certain pathologies of the large bowel, as well as, of course, uh, encouraging the whole mechanism of, of bile production, bile reproduction and bile excretion. Yeah. What about St. John's wort? You know, there's another herb that's uh-huh. pigeonholed for depression uh-huh. and anxiety now, but indeed yeah. in the old days it was used for neuralgias. Yes, look, there's a, a, a lot of, um, how can you call it, a lot of discussion and a lot of opinions on the herb uh, St. John's wort, um, both in herbal and homeopathic medicine. Um, the herb has had a history of being useful uh, for mild nerve-based uh, nerve-based pain. Mm. Uh, in, in the homeopathic literature, it implies an indication or a, a possible activity, even in uh, subduing some levels of pain associated with the with, with what we call shingles. Um, ah. It it has uh, a history that um, is more than just what we see it being used for today um, in 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 our modern understanding or our modern usage of St. John's Ward, which is very much dependent upon the European uh, information and the European usage of it, it is presented uh, as a mild psychotropic remedy with what uh, with what uh, Dr. Rudolf Weiss mentions in his book as having, if you like, mood-stabilizing properties. Right. And that's the term that I like. I, I resist the categorization of St. John's wort as being an antidepressant because I think it, it's, that's going a bit too far. Yeah. I think Weiss's terminology is better. It elevates the mood. It makes uh, one a little bit more euphoric um, rather than just being a conventional competitor for antidepressant uh, pharmacology. It's broader than that, and really the multitude of its constituents um, together provide that benefit, in my opinion, rather than any one single active principle. Um, indeed, I mean, even with the German phytopharmaceuticals, um, mm-hmm. you know, we've gone through this active principle change, if you like, over the years. Mm-hmm. You know, we first thought it was one thing, then another. Now it's one of the um, most studied products out there, the ZE117 formula, um, has been shown not to have any action on on SIP um, liver enzymes. Yes, yes. So therefore, as you say, it can be quite safely used with other antidepressants for a mood stabilising effect. I think that uh, I think there's every um, likelihood that it, uh, it could be a good companion. And certainly, I have known patients that have used it as a means of coming down from stronger and more problematical uh, antidepressant remedies. Uh, However, uh, in in situations like that, uh, I always uh, prefer that a patient work with their medical manager uh, if they're going to append something like St. John's Wort to a treatment of coming down from a mainstream antidepressant. I think to do justice to the patient and to do justice to the, the management of, of his condition, which is usually primarily under the direction of a general practitioner, is wise to have that relationship. 
Can I ask you, and I hope I'm not being mm. rude here, but what about gelsemium? Yep. Like I was blessed in the days of the prescription-only herbs to be able to yep. have access to that herb and use it with great effect. But in your day, it was freely available, wasn't it? That was gelsemium? Yeah. Yeah. Look, uh, we could use in the early days, as I said earlier, a lot of remedies which now are prohibited to be used by persons other than the medical practitioner. And, and teacher Gelsemian, um, a remarkable remedy, what I mean, for, for, Absolutely. for, things, like, for things like trigeminal neuralgia, mm. there are a few remedies that can compete with it. Um, we would use that, albeit to be fair, um, we did not use it very frequently because the conditions for which it's mainly used uh, tend to be uh, more medically managed and more medically uh, profiled than than um, what we were able to do. But certainly we had access to it. These days, I, I think you'll find gelsemian is, if not Schedule Four, um, close to it. I think perhaps I think perhaps it, there might be tincture gelsemian, which might be uh, Schedule Two. That is pharmacy uh, dispensing and prescription only, but I stand uh, contradiction on that. I do know that one of my uh, graduates from the course of the professional extension program that I conducted in Newcastle many years ago had a very, very successful pharmacy in Newcastle, and he was able to dispense uh, tincture gelsemium particularly to those patients that presented to me for whom I was unable to prescribe or supply tincture gelsemium. And uh, he helped uh, many patients by stocking that preparation, tincture gelsemium, and as a pharmacist uh, being legally entitled to to, uh, prescribe it with the very, very stipulated cautious dose that that remedy needs to be administered in. And that's the only thing that I would say about gelsemium. It is a very potentially toxic herb which, yes. if it is to be used, must to be must be used in a very standardised form and, and in a strict adherence uh, to the dosage. It's called up in the in the British Herbal Pharmacopoeia of 1983 with the uh, particular dosage that uh, it's to be prescribed in. So we've seen not just restriction of certain herbs you know, ostensibly because they were poisonous or had um, some danger attributed to them, Mm. like, for instance, Mm. respiratory depression with gelsemium. But what about, you were mentioning earlier about the change in the use of ginkgo and bilberry. How's that changed? How have they changed? Well, these herbs were never used in the early days. I go back to what I said earlier, going back to when I first started practice in, in the 70s, it, the herbs were used, as I emphasized, were essentially physiomedical remedies, remedies that had been uh, associated with a style and a practice of herbalism that uh, came as a blend of U.S. herbs and, and philosophy with, with U.K. herbs and philosophy. So the, the remedies were strongly American-based and with many European herbs, particularly herbs that grew in the United Kingdom, um, the herbs such as ginkgo and, and bilberry were, were never considered. We probably didn't even we probably didn't know even anything about them. Um, but it, down down the track, uh, they emerged. And in the case of of the ginkgo, as far as I am aware, I was the first to give uh, a lecture on on ginkgo, and this was given at a Blackmore's seminar, a particular seminar held at Balgala. Oh, many, many years ago, uh, when I gave what I think was the first dissertation on the emergence of ginkgo, its possibilities, um, its its uh, uses, and the way in which it was a popular remedy already um, in, in 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 Europe, and I mentioned on that occasion, and I will mention it ongoingly, my introduction to it was observing one of my. Uh, students doing uh, a subject called herbal therapeutics with me um, many, many years ago, a German student um, using uh, a preparation of ginkgo in, in, in a lecture. And I asked her what it was, and she said it is uh, the preparation she was using was called tabonin, which was a proprietary name for it. 
and it was a German product. And uh, she said, I can give you uh, uh, some information on it. So she gave me some information on it in German, and my colleague, the good Professor Elliot from Newcastle University, Mm. lovely man who's now passed on, he had all the information translated about the way in which this particular product was a representation of the herb ginkgo and that ginkgo was used popularly, particularly in Germany, as a means of addressing things like memory and and recall and focus and was used a lot in the management of ageing conditions as well as also, as my student told me, uh, popularly used by uh, students to improve their performance uh, as far as taking in information, etc. So I was quite interested in this, and um, as far as I'm aware, uh, I was the first to have a preparation of ginkgo manufactured in Australia, both a tableted preparation and also a liquid preparation. Mm. And that uh, that is a remedy that uh, emerged, if you like, in time uh, from the European tradition, perhaps accidentally here, but now is part and parcel of uh, uh, professional herbal medicine practice. Now, you mentioned manufacture just then, yeah. and, and this is something yeah. that I – this must have changed dramatically over the decades uh-huh. that you've practised. I mean, you know, we've now got cold percolation and, you know, there's a lot of argy-bargy about the 1 to 2 or 1 to 1 or whatever concentration yeah. Yeah. it is. Yeah. But but I, I don't know, I have misgivings that every herb should be made in one way. Don't herbs have different, well, not even actives, but even different attributes that they must be cared for and prepared in various differing ways and and mm. and even, you know, down to the solvent used? Or do you subscribe to just one solvent? No, I don't. I think, again here, uh, you need to recognise that the, the literature, the, the pharmacopoeias, uh, stipulate very, very frequently what solvents should be used in the extraction of particular uh, herbal medications. Keep in mind that uh, the pharmacopoeias uh, uh, were, and many of them still are, uh, riddled with uh, herbal preparations. The uh, Probably the best uh, one is the 1934 edition of the British um, Pharmacopoeia. Um, it's a remarkable text, and a lot of its information is incorporated into the 1983 edition of the British Herbal Pharmacopoeia, for which I have great esteem. So, uh, what uh, what these um, what these pieces of literature do is is indicate to the manufacturer what solvent has been traditionally used, whether it be a, a 25% solvent, a 45% solvent, 60%, and sometimes higher. And by, and by that, I would infer that um, the, the literature is recognising uh, traditional uh, menstruums or solvents that have been used to give good results associated with the particular herbs that they've been developed for. Uh, for instance, I think if you look at, at golden seal, which is a, an alkaloidal remedy, yeah. um, I'm pretty sure you'll find that it's got a 60% uh, solvent or menstruum associated with it. Now, that is called up in the pharmacopoeias and indicates that uh, history has shown that that solvent is particularly effective in extracting the represented representative alkaloids uh, from golden seal. And it is, of course, those alkaloids which play a very, very fundamental role. And as we know with many of the alkaloids, if you use very aqueous solvents, you may not get the same extraction of the alkaloid that you would get when you're using a menstruum that is much more tailored to dragging it out of the herb. So um, I subscribe to the idea that uh, what is in the literature should be taken on board, that there's information there which, in my opinion, should govern the manufacture. Uh, of liquid extracts and, and tinctures, and um, I, uh, I feel that that should be pretty well uh, seen as the yardstick for extracting uh, many of the herbs which are the backbone of our profession. The solvents, the menstruum, are already called up in various monographs and, in my opinion, should be used 
um, confidently in order to get the, the best extract from it. Right. Do, do you ever use, say, one extraction concentration or, or amount of menstruum solvent? Let's say I'm going to use calendula here. Um, uh-huh. a 40% alcohol extract for, let's say, an inflamed gut where you don't want to use too much alcohol versus a very high extract of alcohol, let's say 90%, where you get the resinous compounds coming out from the calendula that I might use for a topical application, let's say on um, herpes. Okay. Well, again, there are, I think you'll find that if you're Looking at uh, calendula, and I stand in contradiction on this. I haven't got the pharmacopoeia in front of me at present. I think you'll find that there is a, a tincture of calendula that has a very high uh, alcohol solvent associated with it. Right. Uh, on the on the other hand, I think you'll find that there's a fluid extract of calendula which has a much less um, um, alcohol solvent. Um, I, I think there's a case there for saying that both those preparations. We're targeting different uh, treatment situations. Yeah. Um, I have never uh, been too concerned about using fluid extract of calendula um, with its more attenuated level of alcohol because rarely is it prescribed uh, on its own. Right. It is usually prescribed with other remedies, many of them uh, with a more aqueous uh, solvent which further attenuates the level of um, alcohol in the uh, in the extract uh, preparation. So, but again, I come back to the point that I have never really found that in the dosages we use, and, and my prescriptions are generally five mils of a compound uh, three times daily, incorporating usually uh, five herbs. I've never found that in the um, varying levels of solvents in each of the herbs in that compound, that there has ever been any significant gut irritation or inflammation. Okay, so what other herbs have we lost touch with or forgotten? I mean, I'm thinking things like um, Ralvolfia, for instance. Oh, well, what I mean, um, Ralvolfia is, is, is a herb that, um, as far as I'm aware, has never been um, part and parcel of the herbal medicine camp, right? Um, for very good reasons. What I mean, as, as you would know, it has a very reliable alkaloidal chemistry, with very well defined alkaloids in it, particularly reserpine, and um, it it is still, in my opinion, one of the gems for managing uh, hypertensive mm. conditions, mm. Uh, and unfortunately, has been largely. Uh, lost sight of here in in um, in, in Western or English speaking medicine, in my opinion, largely because the herb in its traditional form uh, had uh, has been bypassed, and preparations based on the isolated alkaloids uh, took its place, and as a result, side effects emerged, yeah. which made which made the remedy fall into disfavour. Uh, those side effects were not as easily generated when galenical preparations, that is, preparation of the whole herb, was used or taken. And I can remember, oh, probably 20 years ago, referring patients in my practice to pharmacists or pharmacy colleagues who would uh, stock uh, various uh, pharmaceutical preparations of Rewolfia that were based on the entire plant, and um, in certain parts of the world, those preparations are still available. I think uh, a major drug company in India uh, make a preparation, I think it's called Subpina, which is a galenical preparation, uh, dose-related, which uh, is used to manage uh, hypertension. We were never able to use that uh, when I started because I think even I'm not sure whether it was even um, in in the um, medical procedure at that time. Uh, it, it must have been because some pharmacies were stocking preparations. The, a few of them were stocking a couple of preparations of the whole herb. I would suspect that then, 
uh, it was scheduled, uh, that was scheduled for. Mm-hmm. Uh, a doctor could only dispense it and, and prescribe it, and a pharmacist could only um, dispense it or issue it. It was never something that we had uh, access to, um, and uh, as such has largely now fallen out of use as a result of the emergence of more uh, medical antihypertensives. I never found this instability that was found with Rezepin um, with Ravulfia. Um, I mean, ad- admittedly, part of that goes with the responsible prescribing of this. So I guess my next question is to get into this herbal renaissance, and that is, what have we lost along the way about what we study with herbs? Because now we're pigeonholed, if you like, to only what we can use, so we don't even learn about these historically um, available herbs. Yeah, well, look, I think this is a pity because, again, um, I go back when when I started practice, we were able to use, uh, without any problems, um, Convalaria or Lily of the Valley. It right. Was, uh, it was uh, a member of a, of a trilogy of herbs that uh, usually were taken into account by most medical herbalists at that time, uh, Hawthorne Berry, Cactus Grandiflorus, and Lily of the Valley. They were the three remedies that uh, we frequently prescribe for various uh, cardiovascular conditions. Mm. A, 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 a lot of the knowledge, uh, even associated with convalaria, has been lost. Um, and even though we are not permitted to use it, my contention is that a medical herbalist should have an understanding of herbs that we have used in order to appreciate why they were used, something about their chemistry, and maybe their usefulness even in modern medicine today. I note when I read uh, Rudolf Weiss's work, uh, English translation, Herbal Medicine, he comes out very strongly in favour of uh, tincture convalaria um, for managing some levels of, uh, of, of cardiovascular disease. And I suspect that in Europe it is much more popularly used uh, there than what it is in Australia, where even preparations of digitalis, uh, which is the same team as convalaria, are perhaps not used as popularly as, as they were. Uh, my contention is that even though we may have lost some herbs and we are not able to use some herbs, we still need to have an understanding of the history of those herbs, their usefulness, how they work, and um, not let a knowledge of them die, which mm. is perhaps already happening. Yes. So with regards to the herbal renaissance, um, yes. what were the roots of it? Well, look, I think the, if we talk about the herbal renaissance, I think I talk about that great movement of, or how can you call it, that that landslide of interest in herbal medicine that happened in the United States, in England, in Australia, um, particularly in the English-speaking world. And I reflect back on it, and I think a lot of it had to do with the social and political changes that were taking place uh, particularly in the U.S., uh, and, and mainly associated with the uh, Vietnam War, the emergence of the counterculture, where a lot of different lifestyles, different philosophies, um, objection to certain class values, objection to the way in which a particular model of medicine had been dominating in the West. I think out of that uh, social change, uh, that massive political change, had a bit to do with it, um, in as much that I opposed the Vietnam War and, 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 and marched against it. Uh, a lot of the um, a lot of the era of that time, um, call it counterculture, if you like, in my opinion, fed uh, the resurgence of interest because uh, younger people at, at that time are interested in looking at things that have been bypassed, looking at different ways of, of looking at the human body. Uh, different ways of treatment. And so from this, different lifestyles, different diets, um, different philosophies emerged, uh, an interest in different medicine and herbal medicine being very much seen as part of the earth it coincided with this incredible and dramatic social change that occurred at that time. The herbal renaissance, in my opinion, emerged from that 
and even though the Renaissance now perhaps has, has uh, petered out, um, it nevertheless uh, came, in my opinion, from those events. Where was encouragement garnered along the way? Was it fed by, as you talk about this social change? This yeah. it was it was almost a revolution, really. There was a, there was a wholesale questioning of those in power. Yes. Do you think it was fed That's by the public? Point. Therefore, uh, look, I think it was. Um, although interestingly, um, without mentioning any names, some of the uh, people that helped me most uh, to. Um, take up um, the teaching, the lecturing on, the demonstrating on on herbs were people from, um, if you like, uh, very privileged backgrounds and some from the medical profession. Um, What intrigued me at that time was that whilst there was this social change happening, there were a number of organisations and groups and individuals, particularly in Sydney, uh, which was the heartland, in my opinion, of, of the herbal renaissance in Australia, there were groups of people that paradoxically, coming from a different uh, background, a different class structure, were very, very interested in herbs uh, and interested in the history of them, the philosophy of them. Um, and some of them in particular gave me great encouragement because they saw that I had somewhat of a gift in being able to talk about them and uh, um, teach them and give demonstrations on them. So along the way, I was privileged in as much that I came in contact with a number of people, it's best not to mention names, but they were very well known, and organisations, particularly in Sydney, which provided platforms uh, for me to to talk, to lecture, and to encourage me um, eventually to end up getting into teaching. Um, so there was encouragement from from that source. But your point about where the public became involved, I think uh, at that stage there was already the, the rumblings of discontent within ordinary people about the way in which uh, medicine had become, in my opinion, very class-based structure and which was almost presented in a, in a secretive way and... At that stage, there was a growing awareness of the limitations of modern Western medicine and many of the side effects associated with the medications and procedures. So with this massive social change that took place and the emergence of the counterculture, there was also rumblings that took place in the ordinary public in a questioning of uh, of various uh, ways of life, various class systems, and... uh, that also fed an interest in other healing modalities, acupuncture, osteopathy, chiropractic. They were always there, but they were fired by this change, a change supported, as I've said, by paradoxically by people in the medical profession in favoured uh, positions, but also by a public that was becoming more and more aware of the need to criticise and analyse even the medical system at that stage. Right. Let's talk a little bit about the commencement of these teaching programs. It started with, was it the New South Wales College of Naturopathic Sciences? Is that right? That's that's uh, the, the college that I initially right. uh, started teaching at, and uh, I had the privilege of, of um, teaching in that college and uh, being responsible uh, eventually as Dean of the Faculty of Herbal Medicine at that college in graduating what I believe uh, was the first um, three-year um, program uh, and graduated a group of students with a diploma in botanic medicine. That's how we referred to it in those days, the DBM, a group who had studied under me um, for three years as full-time and not part-time, but as full-time students at that college, and uh, a large cohort of them, uh, upon completing uh, their Diploma of Botanic uh, Medicine, uh, went on to form the backbone then of critical uh, associations which would have died without their, their coming into membership. And what about the breaking away, if you like, the, the formation of okay. your school, the Southern Cross Herbal okay. School? Look, it... it Whilst I was very happy at the New South Wales College of Naturopathic Medicine, um, 
there were students who wanted uh, to study outside of that, uh, who wanted to um, have a more intimate uh, level of association, who were not able to study full-time. And so um, I took on board the, the point that it was time for me to establish my own teaching platform. And as such, I formed Southern Cross Herbal School and began to teach a Diploma of Medical Herbalism course. That's how we referred to it, the Dibnet Herb, a Diploma of Medical Herbalism course. Um, initially, interestingly, at Glebe, where I taught it on a, on a nighttime, part-time basis and very happily uh, taught it there um, with, with Dorothy Hall down the road teaching her style of herbal medicine at Balmain mm. and me teaching my style at Glebe. So the Southern Cross Herbal School graduated some of its first uh, graduates with a Dipmed Herb from my teaching program that was conducted in, at the uh, Glebe Town Hall uh, as a part-time program. Then, then from there, um, we moved the headquarters of the school uh, to Gosford and began to teach the course at two levels. We began to teach the course on what might be called a part-time seminar basis where students would present uh, for a full day of lectures once a month in various subjects. And at the same time, um, we also were teaching the program uh, in conjunction with Nature Care College where Southern Cross Herbal School would present a herbal medicine component of their naturopathic uh, diploma course. And that was a very uh, happy association uh, with Nature Care, Southern Cross being responsible for teaching at that college in Sydney, a herbal medicine component of their naturopathic diploma course, and we also carrying on uh, separately in, in our Gosford uh, lecture venues, uh, a seminaral part-time program uh, presenting students with a dipmed herb. That went on for very, very many, many, many years happily. Dennis, when did the NHAA commence in Australia? Was that before the Southern Cross Herbal School or after? Yes, look, the, the NHAA, of which um, I'm a life member, um, um, it was functioning very, very many years before what I'm talking about. Um, it goes way back, I think, to about all don't hold me to it, to about 1920, uh, the NHAA would have good records of the actual commencement, but I think it was round about 1920. Uh, and um, when I um, became associated with it, I think my, I haven't got my diploma, membership diploma in front of me here, but it goes back to about the mid-70s. When I became associated with it, it unfortunately had shrunk to a very, very small number of practitioners who met very irregularly at um, at uh, Paul Wheeler's rooms in King Street, Newtown, and I would attend there on those irregular meetings to participate in uh, the business of the association, uh, which, in my opinion, wasn't much at all. When I... Uh, became associated with it initially as a, a student member. It was a rump of very um, elderly men, um, many of whom were very successful practitioners, but a uh, very small number of them. And in my recollection, not very keen to share some of the information that they had on which so their practices sad. were built. Yeah, It was sad, um, but I guess you could understand it in as much that in those days, um, herbalists were not, uh, how can you call it, um, not that warmly welcomed by the mainstream. And right. there were one or two herbalists that have actually sustained um, litigation for doing things that apparently um, there was no basis to, but uh, had been frightened by um, charges and legal action that had been uh, mooted, had been taken against them. So... I think what was happening was that they they played it close to their chest. They did not want to be seen out there as making waves. They had good, uh, honourable and ethical practices, but they did not feel there's any great virtue in blowing the, the trumpet of herbalism. 
Whereas when I came on board associated with the Renaissance, um, it was the very opposite. I wanted, and those associated with the Renaissance, my graduates, etc., we wanted to see herbal medicine on the map. And I would like to think that I had something to do with putting it on the map, initially via the National Herbalist Association of Australia, and then, of course, subsequently uh, with the Australian Traditional Medicine Society. That's right, which Dorothy Hall established, yes? That's correct. Right. Um, Dorothy established the Australian Traditional Medicine Society, I think, uh, because the style of herb that herbal medicine that Dorothy was teaching was a style of medicine that didn't coincide with the examination requirements of the National Herbalist Association of Australia. Uh, the course structure that Dorothy um, was teaching, the great course that it was, incorporated subjects and, and ideas that were different to those in the NHAA's uh, curriculum or membership curriculum. And uh, it was not easy, therefore, for people uh, doing Dorothy's course to come automatically into the NHAA without uh, doing uh, subjects that would fit them for the examination or curriculum requirements. So Dorothy, smart lady that she was, formed the Australian Traditional Medicine Society, which, of course, immediately became a home for uh, her own uh, herbal medicine graduates and and down the track also for even my own uh, herbal medicine graduates. Moving into the future, Dennis, uh, Uh what can we do to reinvigorate the herbal renaissance? Does it entail a fight for registration or co-regulation? Or how how hard do we fight for herbs that we've lost, like you've said, Kurt Comfrey? We've recently lost Uva Ursi. Yeah, well, this is a difficult question to answer. The, the good thing about herbal medicine is the vast range and diversity of herbs that are available to us and the way in which in the modern world and with the interchange of ideas and cultures and people, um, what is lost is sometimes compensated for uh, by other herbs which share many of the characteristics, if not um, better characteristics than, say, the herb that we have lost. So while I'm disappointed that we have lost herbs, although please don't hold me to this, but I understand that with Uvaiusi there might be some reconsideration of it. Um, I'm not as um, down in the mouth about things because, again here, my own style of herbalism uh, incorporates um, remedies that compensate to a degree for the loss, say, of of herbs like uh, Uvaiusi. For instance, you mentioned Uvaiusi. Well, um, I used and would still use the herb Uvaiusi, but um, I have found, um, for instance, the herb that's known as, as Java kidney tea, popularly used throughout Southeast Asia, um, has many of the possibilities uh, on the kidney and the urinary tract that, say, Uvaiusi has. And I would be using, I would suspect, more of that herb in my practice today than what I would be using, uh, say, uh, Uvaiusi. Um, it was not uncommon. Well, it was still uh, it would still be very common for me to prescribe a combination of uh, buku and Uvaiusi, say, for the management of of urinary tract conditions. But uh, in the absence of Uvaiusi, um, I have been getting what I would consider to be pleasant uh, feedback and, and results by using buku in conjunction with Java kidney tea, orthosyphon stamineus being its botanical name. So um, I I don't like the way in which here and there we seem to be losing this or that. But I come back to the point that herbal medicine is bigger uh, than some uh, bureaucrat, uh, you know, saying you can't use this herb or that herb. Uh, Things come into play And being an Australian today in herbal medicine, uh, we have a lot more at our fingertips due to this uh, cultural change, the interchange of ideas that's happened in Australia in my 40 years. We have a lot more at our fingertips than we've ever had 
to compensate for these losses. Indeed, in your uh, career, you've had a number of fights with governments um, who wished at that time to restrict the practice of herbal medicine. So you engaged patients to contact their politicians, correct? Is that right? I think that what I have done is has been represented by most of the associations that when we have um, been seemingly threatened uh, by government bureaucracies, when bad press has emerged that we feel is unfounded, I, together with the associations, have encouraged my patients to put paper to pen and to express their dissent from uh, intentions that would be against the best interests of ongoing natural or herbal medicine. Um, I would come back and say that as a school, uh, rather than an individual, as a school, Southern Cross Herbal School, and as an executive member uh, of some of the associations, uh, in that way, I would like to think, yes, I've contributed to um, raising alarm bells, for getting people motivated uh, to take issue with those that make decisions about these things. Dennis, there's so much, so, so much that has transpired in your career and that you've brought to other practitioners, for other practitioners, and indeed for the whole profession. Um, I can't thank you enough for taking us through just a snippet of your mind today. And I would urge, I mean, you have a, a course coming up and I would urge every practitioner who really wants to delve into not just the history but the practice to enrol for that course. Uh, it's uh, 2019, so we'll put all the details up on the FX Medicine website so that people can enrol if they wish. That's lovely. Thank you, Dennis, for joining us on FX Medicine today. Thank you very much, Andrew. It's been very nice talking to you. This is FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. FX Medicine is your gateway to news, resources and information on the safe, evidence-based approach to practising complementary and integrative medicine. Visit fxmedicine.com.au to sign up for e-news and stay up to date with the latest research, podcasts and industry information. 